Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Mike O'Connor, who is the author of A Commercial Republic, America's Enduring Debate Over Democratic Capitalism. The book is published this year by University Press of Kansas. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Mike O'Connor, who is the author of A Commercial Republic, America's Enduring Debate Over Democratic Capitalism. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Before we get to your very full book, uh, let's talk a little bit about who you are. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, where you are now? I'm currently teaching at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Uh, I have a PhD in American Studies, actually, uh, which is always a good conversation starter uh, for just about anybody. <laughs> and uh, I've done a lot of work. I was one of the founders of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Uh, I originated with several other scholars the the blog U.S. Intellectual History, which um, led to the founding of the Society. And, and we're all pretty excited about it. sort of a new model for, for a certain kind of scholarship. You know, we just started on a blog and then... You know, five years later, we've got an annual conference and, and a legitimate society and everything. So, so you know, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. And, and you know, your, your background shows up, I think, in so many different ways in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, a book of political history. It's a, it's a book of um, intellectual history. And so um, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, let's start with something that, that, you know, barely even gets into the book uh, and is rarely talked about, which is uh, your book cover. Okay. Um, this is such a, it's a clean and compelling image. Um, for those uh, that are just listening that haven't gone out to get the book, would you first describe the book cover and, and then tell us uh, how involved you were in, either in its design or its choice or adoption or, or what it means for you to, um, to sort of begin looking at this cover? Sure. Uh, well, the, um, you know, it has the title uh, on the top, A Commercial Republic, America's Enduring Debate Over Democratic Capitalism, and underneath that, uh, there's a picture of a, a Capitol dome, um, you know, sort of a classic. Uh, I mean, it might actually be the Capitol in Washington. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and then underneath it is sort of a stock image of a factory. And so it, it's reversed as though one sort of reflects the other in like a reflecting pool. Uh, and the idea is is that the um, uh, they're two sides of the same coin, right? That that the American political system has to influence the economic system and the economic system has to influence the political system. Uh, and, and that's sort of the, I would say the jumping off point for the book itself that, that I don't necessarily think there's enough, uh, history or theory addressing how that works. And so that's, that's sort of what I try to do in the book. As far as how involved I was, that's an interesting question. I would say I was, I didn't feel that involved, but when I talked to other authors, I realized that I was. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I had I had very strong feelings about what I did not want. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of books about American political history, a lot of bunting, a lot of flags, a lot of eagles. Mm-hmm. You know, 
<laughs> I said, right. I don't want any of those things. <laughs> and so that, that took away a lot of their original ideas. Um, and so they would come back to things and be like, eh, you know, I don't love that, but I love this. And, and um, I take no credit for the actual design. It's, it's a beautiful cover, and lots of people have commented on it. But uh, the idea is at least in the minimum of saying, um, I like this and not that. Uh, I, I was a little bit involved, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, just according to the the book, we can credit the jacket design to Carl, uh, Carl Jansen, who I, I don't know if he's... Right. Uh, affiliated with University uh, Press of Kansas or not, but it's it's just a very nice book. Yeah. It also has a lot of interesting things to say. You've, you've alluded to some of your motivation to write this book, mm-hmm. um, but I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about you know what you see as missing from some of the accounts of the, the political history of the United States, the economic history of the United States, that you wanted to address in the book, because the book spans a, a large amount of time. So what was, what was missing? Well, what I... Wanted to add really was just the notion of trying to keep the American economic system from the perspective of, of the political system in mind at one time. You know, there's a whole bunch of books about each of those things. You know, no shortage of that. Um, but I don't see what what you might call a a tradition of American political economy as being all that uh, vibrant the way it might be in Europe, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Uh, I really wanted to, I mean, originally my, my, my theory was, and this is going back to when I was like a child asking my dad, like, why is communism so terrible, you know, and that dates me, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, and wanting this sort of answer that, that, that our system is, is based on these certain immutable principles. And the more I dug, the more I, I couldn't find these principles, you know, like, I don't know that the principles that we say that we operate under are actually the ones that we do. And then as I, as I sort of dug around and started to think about that more, I realized, well, you know, it's an ongoing dialogue and we have a a series of principles by which we animate democracy and capitalism um, that have changed over time. Right. And so I think some of the, um, you know, very influential accounts of the past, I mean, Louis Hartz is obviously example, you know, want to want to say like, I'm going to, I'm going to find this, principle that animates all of American political or economic life or intellectual life and sort of show it moving through time. And, and I don't really think that's exactly what happened. I think we have a, a loose commitment to some broad principles that manifest itself so specifically in different eras that they might as well be different principles. You know, another way to sort of phrase this would be that there are some some important myths out there about the relationship between government and the economy. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I, I wonder if there are any in particular that you set out to dispel in your book. You sort of begin the book in the contemporary period, and then you move backwards. Right. But there, are there any that stand out to you that either just really kind of got under your skin or, or the, that, that you see as, as just so sort of faulty that, that maybe they, they really do harm? Well, I yes, there was one in particular. It's, it's the contemporary myth that's usually associated with modern-day conservatism, uh, it doesn't have to be, but it, it tends to be that um, that laissez-faire. You can sort of reach backwards in time, and you can see it, you know, with the Puritans. <laughs> you can see it with the, uh, with the founders that that there's something natural or inevitable about um, a completely free, almost libertarian ideal of of what the market was supposed to be in America, and that that got all messed up with with usually the New Deal as the culprit in that narrative. 
Um, and, and I don't see that. I see certainly going back to the beginning of uh, the nation, right? I mean, Alexander Hamilton was a founding father, too. And <laughs> he certainly was not shy about getting the government involved in the economy for very specific reasons, reasons that seem like pretty good ones to me in retrospect. And, and so um, one of the other things that I found intriguing uh, just sort of about the way the book was, is structured is, is these, um, these chapters. Mm-hmm that you put together. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, not each chapter, but, but, but how you structured these chapters mm-hmm. and, and how that moves you through this, this longer time period. Okay. Uh, yeah, the chapter, there's, there's six chapters and they each cover a different time period. And, um, originally I started with sort of a case study model. I, I thought, uh, this is, I think for those of you who are familiar with American studies, I think this is fairly typical in American studies out of my own training was, you know, find an event that you think is particularly telling or symbolic or meaningful and then find everything you need to know to explain why that's important. And in so doing, you will explain everything about the period that needs to be explained. And I find when people read it, a lot of times they they don't realize that there's a case study anymore, that I've done so much explaining that the case study isn't really, <laughs> isn't really mm-hmm. at the center. And so, uh, and so the way it sort of wound up is more of, um, it's a periodization and it's, and it's based on the premise that certain periods are more preoccupied with specific questions, right? So, you know, the founding era, for example, was really interesting just how, getting the getting the government off the ground. Is the nation going to survive? Can it be militarily strong enough? And, and so on. Um, and whereas in the Jacksonian period, I argue later, um, was actually more concerned with this notion of the government being too involved in the economy as a reaction against these sort of Hamiltonian programs. Uh, and so they had a very different set of concerns. And... Uh, so the chapters just keep moving forward uh, about 40 years or so each, each time um, moving up then through, uh, you know, the Gilded Age, the New Deal, the liberal consensus, and then, and then the conservative moment that we're in now. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was particularly uh, uh, interested in the chapter you had on, on taxes. Um, and, and you refer to the, so the bookish development of, uh-huh. of Modern conservatism. Right. I, I, I've had a couple of other people on the podcast in the past talking about similar terrain, but I wonder if you could walk us through how you interpret this time period and and what was so bookish about it and okay. and sort of where, where that lands us today because I think that's a, kind of one of the real interesting parts of the book. Okay. The uh, the the bookish quote is actually from George Will, uh, who who said that the origins of modern conservatism were conservatism were particularly bookish. Um, which I think is true. If you look at a lot of intellectuals and, and um, even, you know, Ayn Rand, and I mean, a lot of people were writing things in, say, the 50s and 60s. Um, but the period that I really focus on with regard to, to the conservative movement is really the 1970s, where I think conservatism makes the move from being, I don't want to say merely an intellectual movement, because I think intellectual movements are very important, but uh, for being primarily an intellectual movement to, to actually acquiring some sort of political muscle. And um, to me, what's, what's central there, and I think what, what's, what you see as central to conservative economic thought today is this notion of taxes, that they're so villainous and evil and that's something that you actually don't see in um, Hayek, for example. You don't you don't really even see it in the conscience of conservative uh, all that much. Uh, but Barry Goldwater, 
And um, you do start to see it picking up in the 1970s. And uh, I associate that with the supply-side movement. Um, and the argument that, that I make in that book, that I, in that chapter, rather, that I obviously think is correct, <laughs> is um, that supply-side was a uh, very specific theory at a very specific time that was a legitimate uh, intellectual economic reaction to a very unique economic situation that we, we called stagflation, right? That, that inflation and uh, was high while economic growth was low and, that, and, and unemployment was high, right? And those things aren't all supposed to happen at once. And so the traditional Keynesian tools that had been in play for about 50 years at that point um, just didn't work. But nobody had any ideas. And so when the supply setters came along and said, here's what we do, we need to lower taxes, uh, particularly on the wealthy, particularly at the, at the higher um, echelons of the tax code, uh, that was a, a message that they realized, right, worked very well, not only economically, but politically, because um, Jude Winiski, the, the, the conservative uh, writer and journalist, um, came up with what he called the two Santas theory, whereas Democrats are always able to say, we are going to give you the voters, we're, we're the Santa Claus of you know social welfare programs, and Republicans after that point had been simply the Scrooge, right? They'd been saying, no, 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 no. You're going to, you're going to ruin the deficit. You're going to have create all these problems. But he said, we don't have to be the Scrooge because Santa Claus will always beat Scrooge. <laughs> and so we, we could be the other Santa Claus who says, we're going to give you money back in the form of tax reduction. And so the political message met with the economic message uh, in a way that I think worked really well for the conservative movement. And, and then I think in my opinion, it, it was something that worked very well at a certain moment in time that hardened from being a specific economic reaction to a specific set of circumstances into a, uh, a sort of ideological dogmatic position that taxes are always bad that I think um, just doesn't, doesn't really hold up as well, even as the original supply side thinkers um, pushed it. So um, where does this, where does this take us? You write from the sort of, Perspective of American studies, mm -hmm. in, in many ways, the tradition of, of uh, historians, but political science scientists also um, invest time in, in similar pursuits. Mm -hmm. But but where does this leave us today? You sort of take us up until today. But but what does this perspective? Um, which questions does it answer about our contemporary time period? That without these perspectives, we might might answer differently, mm -hmm. or answer wrongly, or or answer badly. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way of putting it because I, I wish I could say I had some great answers. I, I, I don't know that I do. I'd like to correct some of the questions that, that traditionally get asked in, in, our, in our public discourse mostly. Um, I, I think that our contemporary political discourse is, is warped by the idea that the government should not be, as Republicans often say, quote, uh, picking winners and losers in the economy. And I, and I think that that's a... Uh, just a red herring. I, I, on the one hand, I think it's impossible not to pick winners and losers. Almost everything the government does picks winners and losers advertently or inadvertently. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't think that's ever been part of the American political tradition. I think the government's always been pretty active in shaping the economy and saying what direction they want it to go. What What is it supposed to accomplish? What, what values do we want um, the American people to live through? 
through to actualize through their economic choices. And so I, I would love to see just that particular meme, if you will, just taken off the table. And I, and I, I believe, perhaps naively, but I believe that alone would just significantly increase uh, the level of public discourse. It's an interesting book, and I think it's an interesting sort of contribution to how we think about um, many of the debates, many of the sort of themes of the election that we're, we're in the midst of right now. Um, Mike's uh, book, again, is a, a Commercial Republic, America's Enduring Debate Over Democratic Capitalism. It's uh, published by University Press of Kansas and available, I'm sure, at their website. Mike, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I appreciate being on.